0: Hey Steve, it's Ross Burridge here from Aussie mate, Australia, Uh, just out on a ride, just listened to four of your episodes back to back, it was uh, Miro Michael, Bonnie, Tyler and uh, my good buddy Kerry State, so thought I should ring in and just uh, thank you for the content, Uh, we're in a bit of a slumber over here in Australia at the moment. Uh, Victoria's just uh, gone into stage four lockdown, well most of Victoria the rest of Victoria is in stage three which I'm lucky to be in so I can still get out and ride but sadly you know most of our gun bike packers are based in Victoria so which will mean most of them won't be able to get to the upcoming race to the rock which is a bit sad because we had uh, all our big guns lined up like Jesse Carlson, Sarah Hammond, Louis Sidor, Steve Halligan from New Zealand. Just would have been amazing uh, to see those guys go head to head. But yeah, just thought I should uh, bring up and thank you, brother, because your distraction is. Oh, I've got some riders coming here. Hey guys, how are you? Uh, yeah, you're a great distraction. Not much to train for over here at the moment so it's great hearing what everyone else is doing around the world. And uh, that's about it but keep at it, might see you over there in Banff in June 21, that's the plan at the moment but God knows what uh, situation it's going to be uh, by the time we get to June next year so fingers crossed we'll get to meet. you, legend!
1: Welcome to My Bike Forty and the My Bike Forty podcast. I'm your host Steve O'Shaughnessy. Ross Bridge, thanks for that voice intro, brother. That's uh, that was a lovely surprise to get that. Um, good to hear from you. Good to hear that you're well and that you're riding your bike. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, like I say, we've had it, we've had it pretty lucky over here in Canada. Well, at least in my little small town, you know, there hasn't really been any lockdowns or anything like that. So I sympathize with those of you who are kind of stuck in a specific radius around your place of residence must be really tough, but you know, strange times. It's all strange times right now, but, um, back to back episodes, my friend, I'm sorry, man. What's it like listening to my voice for like four hours? (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. I think the worst part, I I love doing this. I love talking to you guys. The, the worst part of it all is editing and having to listen to your own voice over and over again. It's, uh, it could be annoying. So I'm glad you're enjoying it, dude. And, uh, I hope, uh, everyone else is enjoying the podcast, enjoying the podcast I'm putting out. And, uh, yeah. So I want to thank, uh, Rebound Cycle and Cycling 101 again for their support of the podcast. Thanks so much, guys. And, um, just going to be quick today because you know what? Last week I kind of felt like I was standing on a soapbox last week talking. And yeah, I took up a lot of your time. For those of you who listened to me gab for 15 minutes of about mental health, uh, Nonsensically. Um, thanks for thanks for hanging in there. But I'm gonna keep it short today. So, yeah, I just want to throw out the promo code. Cycling 101 has a promo code for a bike fit or a consultation. If you sign up for one of those and you use the uh, promo code 101 VIP 20, you're gonna save 20% on that service. So, please give them a try. And also, if you're shopping for food, and uh, a lot of online shopping is going on lately, you know, and especially. If you live in a small town like I do, can't get a lot of stuff. You're always getting stuff online. But if you want to get some food, if you head, over, head on over to knackbar.com and uh, shop around there, if there's stuff you like, add it to your cart. And at checkout, use the promo code Ryan. Ryan Draper gave us his knackbar ambassador promo code. So go ahead and take advantage of that. And um, yeah, I think that's all I got. So Ross Bridge, thanks. Uh, it's really cool to, to hear voice intros coming from around the globe. It's just so awesome hearing other voices out there in the world and the community. And um, I really love the community. So uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. Those of you who were able to attend last month's RTD10 celebration, the uh, Ride the Divide film 10-year anniversary, uh, would have uh, saw an interview between Mike Dion and John Stampsad. And a lot of the stuff that was that was said in there really resonated with me. I, I really dug where John was coming from. And I think his angle on the endurance sports is really uh, to push our limits and to get out of our comfort zones and, um, and just leave the comforts behind. And he thinks it's vital. He thinks it's really good for us. And that's kind of a place where I stand as well. Um, you know, um, so I really wanted to get him on. I really wanted to talk to him. And, uh, he just had a good vibe. So I was able to connect with John Stamstad and I really enjoyed this conversation. He's a MTB hall of famer and, uh, he is, his resume is like forever long. I could read the wiki on it. It's, uh, uh, you know, started doing ultra marathons and, um, in 1985 race across Missouri, which we talk a little bit about, um, done a, a bunch of, uh, 24 hour races. Um, he, uh, the Australian bicycle challenge, um, in 1992, um uh the Iditarod trail he won that race in 93, 94, 95, 96 and 97 um and uh Stampstad followed that with victories um in 98, 99 and 2000. I'm kind of just like ripping this off the wiki but it's there's just so much I just can't remember it. But um in, in 1999 he basically did an individual time trial of the Great Divide Mountain Bike route and um it, uh, took him like 18 days and five hours. And what's shocking about that. And what's awesome about that is that he was using paper maps. So, um, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's quite a feat. And that, that time, I mean, if we were to try to tackle that, that route with just paper maps, um, and say 26 inch wheels and like super old technology and rim brakes and all that stuff, that's, Amazing man, like that is so incredible. And uh, so, I really wanted to talk to him about that experience and other experiences he's had. And, um, yeah, I really hope you enjoy this convo. And so, without further delay, I bring you John Stamstad. So, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking some time to talk to me. I know you have a heart out, you said it in about uh, about an hour, so we can just keep it to an hour. That's cool.
2: Yeah, okay. Plenty of time.
1: okay awesome and um you're in seattle correct is that right i am cool yes. um how's the uh how's seattle been for uh for covid and and uh there seems to be a lot of political unrest in the states too that might be in C- seattle what's it all been like down there
2: uh it's been interesting i mean we got we were one of the first states hit um but it hasn't gotten... We haven't had really that second wave. Like, the rural parts of Washington, you know, got hit kind of hard this summer. I mean, Seattle has trickled back up, but it doesn't doesn't feel like the rest of the country. I think the, you know, the states and local administrators did a pretty darn good job. You know, for having... For getting it first is always, like, it's hardest because you don't know what to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, they they guessed pretty well.
1: I think it's been, um, it's almost like a a social experiment. If there was any time that I thought that we were living in a uh, simulation, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if you follow that kind of thing. It almost almost feels like they're like, you know what? This simulation needs a bit of a shakeup. Let's give them a pandemic. And it's just been bananas. Bananas.
2: Yeah, there aren't many things that change how you live your life and this certainly has and it's been fascinating to watch people i mean for the most part people have adapted pretty well like kind of everybody's daily life has at least changed a bit and people are rolling with it we're, we're adaptable folks i yeah. like seeing people under stress it's always fun to see how they react
1: yeah I, I i didn't really realize maybe how much anxiety it had caused until you really kind of start paying attention I mean I live in a small town in BC like we only have 3 or 4,000 people here so it's pretty Invermere BC so it's mm-hmm. pretty it's pretty chill although because we're a we're a mountain town we we have a huge influx of uh tourism from Calgary Right and uh, uh the, the city folk have a different lens on the whole thing than the country folk do so you know they come in a lot more masks you know um yeah I don't know it's it's pretty crazy It's it's been an interesting experiment, social experiment, for sure.
2: Yeah, I did a ride, uh, rode up into the mountains last week and was surprised to see the the small mountain towns, it looked like 100% adoption of masks. Yeah, I was really surprised. Um, It was virtually, you know, 100%. Even, you know, folks getting out of their pickup trucks and, you know, going into the gas station didn't need to be told to put their mask on. It just, uh, it was good to see, um, because I know it's... (laughs) been a big problem over around Yakima you know they had a huge uh flare up with cases and they're trying to get a handle on it so hopefully it's under control
1: yeah I don't know I I think my my opinion is we're just kind of at the beginning this is just the start of kind of what we're going to see the 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 second of of many more waves I would imagine that we're going to see but
2: I think so too like there's no reason um not to think that I mean one of the it's hard to you know know which experts to listen to but Mm. one guy that I like a lot is Michael Osterholm he doesn't get on very many TV shows because he says I don't know a lot Mm. and TV programs don't like that as an answer like they want a they want a you know a hardcore prediction and it doesn't really matter if you're you know wrong about it a month later they'll ask you for another one and he says he doesn't know a lot because we don't know uh, like with trans- a- transmission of this, all the experts were saying early on, you know, hand sanitizer, don't touch anything, be super careful. And now <clears throat> we kind of find out that you know it's it's more it's breathing it in is how you're getting it. You know, touching food or you know objects isn't really um, uh, you know that dangerous. Um, so we're just we're we're just learning how this virus works.
1: Yeah, I was listening to, um, do you know, um, Eric Weinstein, Heather Hayden? Yeah. 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 So I listened to their podcast quite a bit and he went on a bit of a, um, not a rant, but just just talking about how the way he sees it as a biologist is that it's about exposure density. So, you know, if you go into a shopping mall or in, and you're in a tight space or you're in a restaurant uh, where there's, you know, people really close to you. The, the the idea that the density of the virus that's floating in the air will be higher because you've got more people, less air volume, blah, blah, blah. I also heard that uh, he had mentioned that um, ultraviolet light kills it. So if you're outside on a sunny day, um, as soon as that virus hits the air, it's going to die.
2: Yeah. The transmission rates outdoors are extremely low.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I don't understand why the lockdowns occur. Like, you know, in California, um, yeah,
2: it was a huge mistake. It kept people cooped up, which, yeah. you know, one drives people kind of crazy. Yeah. Just physically being cooped up and then kind of tramping on, you know, people's, you know, freedoms, you know, doesn't sit well. So they tend to be more resistant about things. Um, but yeah, we should have been encouraging people to go for, up for a hike. Yeah. You know, or, or a bike ride by themselves.
1: Yeah, because the only way you're going to build immunity is to stay active, right? Is to keep to keep moving and keep your your immune response high. You know, sitting well, around watching Netflix, Netflix isn't going to help.
2: Yeah, that was the other thing, is the, the association between <clears throat> um, obesity and a bad outcome with COVID is, you know, extraordinarily high. And, you know, we need, uh, you know, fitness should be a, or exercise should be a prescribed medication for certain things. Yeah. You know, um, exercise is proven to uh, increase health benefits greatly. And most doctors don't give you that RX. They give you a, you know, medication and not a big believer in that.
1: Yeah. It's interesting too. Like I can't remember where I heard this, but someone was saying that, you know, if you go to the vet with your, with your dog, and you say, "Oh, my dog's really sick. I don't know what's going on." And the, probably the first question they're going to ask is, "Well, what's your dog eating? What did your dog eat?" You know. Yeah. And you know, as humans, we go and see our doctor, and it's just like, "Oh, this hurts, that hurts." You know, low energy, blah blah blah. It's like, hmm. Okay. Well, let's see if we can find a pill to give you, rather than approach it more uh, homeopathically and just say, "Well, tell me about your diet. What are you eating? Tell me about your regular exercise, or more importantly." I think we're discovering this more and more is tell me about your sleep. How's your sleep uh-huh. consistency? Like, are you getting enough sleep? Um, I think that's huge. I think that's one of the biggest things actually is just our, we're not getting enough sleep anymore because we're burning the candle at both ends. We're staying up late watching TV or, or working pounding away at the keyboard and working and trying to be successful. And, and we're forgetting that the most important thing is to keep moving and to, uh, to live a healthy lifestyle. So, Tell me, tell me about your healthy lifestyle. What does what your day, what do your days look like? What do you do for a living, John?
2: Um, well, at the moment, I'm trying to write a book. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, just about my exploits and um, travels and that. So that's what uh, is occupying my time now, and uh, I'm trying to ride a lot. I I wasn't able to ride for a few years. I got hit by a car uh, three and a half years ago.
1: Yeah, I heard that at the rdd 10
2: yeah. And, um, that shattered my left leg, uh, did a tib fib broken in, uh, three or four places. Damn. Uh, so they fixed it. Like they bolted it back together, you know, um, good as new, but those things don't just don't recover that quickly. Mm-mm. And I tried like every few months I would try, you know, getting out and trying to ride and it was just not, uh, pleasant at all. And then last summer uh, I tried again and, lo and behold, it was perfect. And so I've been riding for about a year, got in shape, uh, lost a lot of weight cause I gotten fat sitting around doing nothing. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of back at it and, you know, like I think for me mentally, especially mm. exercise is really important to my brain chemistry. I just do better in every way, uh, when I'm physically fit.
1: I agree and it's sometimes it's hard to, have, uh, to balance that, right. Do you have a family or. Yeah, yeah. Three kids. Yeah. Three kids, man. Wow. That's a lot of kids. I have two. I couldn't imagine having three. <laughs> that's crazy. But that that's, that's the hardest thing that I'm finding, um, with having a family is just trying to find the balance. You know, like you've got all the scales, like it's not just two sides of the scale anymore. There's like a, half a dozen sides of the scale and you're trying to balance all this out. Like you know, your mental health and you're, you know, finding your creative outlet, like me doing this, you know, my kids are upstairs watching cartoons, you know, just the normal routine. That's why yeah. I'm so restricted, right? It's like, you know, 8am or 8pm because the rest of the time I'm dadding. But um, yeah, the, the mental health aspect of it, I always feel better after I come back from a ride. If, mm-hmm. I've had, if I've had the shittiest day, if I just go even just an hour, 45 minutes, if I just go pound it out in the woods near my house and come back, I always feel better right yeah and that le- that goes back to what we were just talking about right staying healthy and balancing mental health and um wow man that so were you on your bike when you got hit by the car
2: yep ah oh, damn yep. bike commuting and uh just got drilled almost tore like the guy almost tore my leg off oh my god because I got stuck you know tangled in his the wheel well of the car
1: oh my god
2: <laughs> and he started to move oh so I got a- I don't know if he thought he was on top of me and, you know, had to, had to, had to, you know, reverse or something, but he started to move and I had to scream to get him to stop. And that's the only thing that kept my leg on, you know, because it was, I'd look at myself, you know, I'm on the ground, you you know, you do the inventory. It's like, oh you know, right arm works, left arm works, head is good. And then I look at my left leg and it's bent 90 degrees and my foot is pointed the wrong way. Oh my God. I'm like, that's bad. Like, that's really bad. I just hope it's not my knee. Like, I didn't just yeah. you know, tear every ligament, which, you know, hard to say which is worse, but probably this, you know, breaking it is better than ripping every you know, tendon and ligament. Um, uh, but, yeah, so that was an adventure going through that.
1: Wow. It must have been. Um, do you even remember the experience? Like, do you remember? The pain was, was there any pain or were you just kind of in this psychedelic endorphin state that,
2: Oh no, it was the most painful thing I've ever had. I remember the the paramedics got there super quick. Like they were, they were there within minutes. And I remember telling them, you know, like they try and do, they try and figure out if you're in shock, you know, or whatever. And I I told them like, dude, I'm going to be perfectly fine. I just need my leg pointed in the right direction. (laughs) Get me lined up, and he's like, "Sir, I'm not going to touch you until I pump you full of fentanyl." Oh no! And then, and he says to you know his buddy, "Hey, should I give him X?" And the other guy's like, "Oh God, no, give him
1: X plus." Like,
2: yeah, I'm like, I can hear you. Like, that's bad. (laughs) That sounds bad to me.
1: Yeah, the fentanyl thing's pretty crazy. I mean, we've we've had a bit of a a wave of fentanyl come through, through this uh, little town kind of over the last handful of years. And, and you've just watched lives get destroyed. Uh, But, but I think, I think the uh, people are afraid of, of opiates like that. But a lot, a lot of times I think addiction could be rooted back to um, other issues, right? It's, it's not the drug itself that they're necessarily getting hooked on. It's, It's the, it's the escape from, Uh, the other troubles and mental health issues that people are having that that completely melt away after they take a drug like that Um, yeah it's
2: interesting Um, painkillers have never uh, really worked for me and i've read that um, gingers redheads are um, uh, they have a different relationship with uh, pain medication and even have to be for anesthesia they have to do things differently i don't Oh, totally understand the, the process there and theoretically, supposedly they have a higher pain threshold, um, than other, uh, ethnic groups. Um, but yes, I did not like fentanyl at all. It made me feel a little crazy. And then at the hospital, they gave me Dilaudid and I didn't like that either. Oh, I've never heard of that. It's the new, it's like the new latest, greatest, you know, of that, of that family. Yeah. Uh, but then they g- gave me morphine and morphine was some good stuff that yeah. it took the pain away. And I was feeling very good there for a while.
1: Yeah. I had, um, my appendix out a handful of years ago and they, um, they had me on morphine and, um, you know, knowing what I know about opiates, they would come and ask me, you know, like, how's your pain today? And I actually felt kind of bad asking for more, more morphine. Cause I didn't want them to think that I was succumbing to its addictive powers, right? but man, the dreams I had on morphine <laughs> and the sleep is just the best sleep I've ever had. So I, I can totally see why people would be drawn to a, to a compound like that. But, uh, well, I'm really glad you're riding a bike again. That's so important.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad about that too. That's awesome.
1: So tell me about your, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin which is a real nice kind of liberal, you know, outpost in the heart of the Midwest and for being surrounded by cornfields, it's the people there are really outdoorsy. Um, you know, the terrain is, you know, nothing interesting there, but all the, you know, I just, I grew up, you know, cross country skiing, um, didn't start biking until I was in college. And then I started bike touring. Did a bike tour with a friend of mine out to Colorado. And that's where I learned, you know, I loved being on my bike all day. So that was pretty fun. And did a, I heard about, had heard about this race called the bike across Missouri. So it was St. Louis to Kansas City and back nonstop. And I did that and I did pretty well. And I decided I should, you know, this would be a good hobby. I should apply myself to it and started doing it. Started doing well. Uh, in those days, I was working as a magazine photographer. Um, I was living in Cincinnati, Ohio, working as a photographer, and then people started to want to pay me to ride my bike. And you know, when you're a twenty-something and somebody wants you to, you know, pay you to ride your bike, you it seems like a pretty darn good plan. Um, there's plenty of time in life to do other things. Uh, so I did that. So I never. Never expected, you know, bike racing to um, be a career or earn a living doing doing it. But I was incredibly fortunate to be able to do that for, you know, fifteen or twenty years. What was the start date
1: of of that experience?
2: Um, my first bike tour was in '85, um, and then I started, I guess, started doing the serious racing. I had a couple ups and downs. I rode in an 86 and then I got sick with Giardia and I couldn't ride in an 87. And then I rode in an 88 and I had an injury and didn't ride in an 89. And then from 90 on, I was a very serious, you know, competing as much as I could.
1: And that's kind of the heyday of mountain biking, right? Like the early nineties, it yeah. really started to, to get, you know, that was the thing to do. So timing's everything, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Who I mean, you could not have been more fortunate with the you know, the growth of mountain biking and our paths just kind of crossed.
1: Awesome. Who were you riding for at that time?
2: Uh, I started with Bridgestone bicycles. Okay. Yeah. Rode for them for a few years until they pulled out of the U S market and then rode for team Richie for a couple of years oh, nice. and then was sponsored by Chevy trucks.
1: Oh, right. I remember hearing that on the uh, RDT 10 thing. That's awesome. Chevy trucks. Did you get, did you get a truck? Yep. That's awesome. What a great way yeah. to to experience were, mountain biking. It's awesome.
2: Yeah, they were a great sponsor.
1: Yeah. And so were they a sponsor you just for specifically in, endurance events?
2: Yep. That's what I, we, well, we, we had a team and then I was, you know, I did the endurance sports stuff and uh, like Floyd Landis was on our team and they did the standard mountain bike, Norby Nationals and all that.
1: That's cool. So you weren't drawn to get into the pro tour as a road cyclist?
2: No, I wasn't, was certainly wasn't good enough. And I never really, I mean, I did some road racing, but I did it mainly as training in the spring. And then, um, you know, once you start doing longer events, I found it hard to, you know, come back home and, you know, have the leg speed to do a a crit. Mm -hmm. Like I just couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, the, the, my calling was the long distance racing for sure.
1: Yeah. It's like, um, it would be difficult to flip back and forth, right? Cause you, you get, your body gets tuned to a certain activity. Like and it's a totally different activity, right? Different fueling, different um, pacing, you know, like I tend to ride a lot of distances too. And now when I go out to do high intensity stuff, I find it like, uh, it's hard to make the switch sometimes because you know it takes it takes takes you a long time to warm up it takes me a long time to warm up so for me to go out for an hour and do a quick hour rip by the time I'm done for an hour it's like man I, I gotta keep going I just warmed up
2: <laughs> right yeah, yeah my body's the same way I mean everybody has different physiology yeah uh, mine is definitely geared towards the super long distances
1: now do you think that that's an age thing because I've often thought that um I find that when I hit forty. Um, that it seemed to be almost, that's a male's prime of life. It almost seems physically. And I, I find that endurance was never on my, my radar until the last handful of years. And I find that you you see some of these long distance races and it's all kind of the older guys that are, you know, forties and up that are kind of taking the, uh, riding at the pointy end of the stick. And I wonder if there's an age thing to that, or I wonder if that's just a, um, a mindset thing, patience. Yeah.
2: it's so. up. A lifestyle. I mean, I started in long distance in my early 20s, but you're right. You know, it's usually it's the guys that are in their forties. What I find interesting though, is I mean, now, you know, I'm 55 and kind of, you know, looking at that world, there are not many, there are not as many people over the age of 50 doing, you know, the current events as I would have thought there would have been.
1: Hmm.
2: Seems like there would have been a lot of guys who, and maybe that will change, like, people who were part of that 90s, you know, mountain bike thing who, you know, quit racing because they had to go on with life, you know, get married, have kids or you know, whatever their life was. But now most of the, you know, if you're in your fifties, your kids are probably at least, you know, uh, semi on their own and, you know, people, folks might have, you know, some more free time, you know, like not necessarily they're retired, but you know, they're, they're not going to soccer games and soccer practice all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday on weekends. Um, yeah, I'm interesting to, to see, I cause now, I mean, I remember when I started, I, we were taught that the, your athletic peak was, you know, age 28. Yeah. And basically, as soon as you hit 30, it's just like, all right, well, when are you going to quit? You know, and it's just, the clock is ticking. And, and now, I mean, I think after age 50, you definitely, um, you know, start to age physiologically, like you, you are going downhill, but up until 50, like you can be as fast as anybody. And I think even till 60, you can be, you know, fast enough.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's guys out there who are in their seventies riding the tour divide. Right. Which, which is so inspirational. I mean, what you said about kids being, you know, being a certain age and kids, having your kids kind of on their own. I'm, I'm 49 and I'm just getting started. I've got a seven and a five-year-old. So I'm like,
2: Oh yeah, long way. Yeah. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) We
1: got a long way to go, buddy. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of what I was alluding to about the balance. Right. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And uh, I, I feel that way too. Like I'm I'm hoping to next year on my birthday, I hope to celebrate my birthday on the tour divide somewhere. That's kind of my plan. Go into the, go into my fifties kind of with a bang. Right. So Yeah. We'll see how that goes. So when did, when did you, um, So you were the first to, uh, race the tour divide self-supported, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what year was that?
2: 99. 99.
1: And, um, tell me about your life leading up to that.
2: Um, well, I was doing the 24 hour, you know, racing. That's kind of where, you know, all the interest was, you know, at that time. Um, and then I'd heard about the, the, Great divide route being planned. I'd known about it for a couple of years. And then they finally finished the maps. Maybe they finished the maps at the end of 98 or somewhere in there. And then, so I made plans to do it, you know, as soon as I could. Um, So did it that, that following summer. Uh, So a few people had a handful of people had done it, but um, nobody had done it like to attempt to, you know, set a time. So I get kind of credit for starting it, although I certainly wasn't the first person, you know, to do it. I just, I was the first person to attach a clock to it. And and then it, you know, a couple of guys took it over after that, like Mike Kuriak and Matt Lee and eventually turned it into the Tour Divide race.
1: And uh, back then, um, gear must have been kind of tough to, to find. Was it hard to kind of kit your bike out, or because you had so much touring experience, it, it, it was you know fairly straightforward?
2: Um well, I mean, you don't think about it at the time because you you know I had state of the art everything at the time. It's just everything is so much you know better now. Um yeah, the one difference was <clears throat> I was planning on doing it <clears throat> fully supported because that's kind of how those endeavors were done back like race across America, you know, and that was kind of the standard of, you know, doing a distance was, you know, how far, how fast can you go, you know, with, uh, you know, all resources. But then just a week before I was to do it, I decided, you know, that's not really the flavor of what the sport should be. And anytime you do something for a first time, you, you kind of set a precedent, Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to do it self-supported and just kind of had to get my gear together, you know, fairly quickly, but I had done it enough that, you know, that wasn't a problem.
1: And yeah, you had mentioned, um, when, uh, the, uh, RDT 10 uh, in the RDT 10 event, our <laughs> ride the RTD 10 about, uh, just about technology and how, you know, um, your lighting system, for instance, you had like two pounds of D cells to run like a 12 volt, um, incandescent yeah, a five, lamp
2: a five watt bulb which a five it's horrible
1: yeah and you sell like a like a hundred lumens or something like that
2: I don't even know like that's what I would guess like I haven't seen a direct comparison but yeah it's you know 75 or 100 lumens whereas you know nobody's riding now with like you know less than you know probably 800 normally and you, that probably has a high beam of a thousand or 1500 yeah you know, for you know, a fast descent, um, and they're basically running on AA batteries, so yeah. you're not carrying any battery weight whatsoever. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, and then, obviously, the biggest thing is uh, GPS navigation for sure, because those first generation of the maps, one, like they just weren't very accurate, and then two, like it's just it's hard, it's harder and slower to navigate by map, and then you know when you when you're navigating by you know, a cue sheet that says, you know, go, you know, five kilometers and then, you know, take a right on the dirt road. Well, you go five kilometers and you've got three dirt roads within a hundred yards. Right. It's like, and none of no, there's no markings anywhere. Like nothing is signed. Um, so you just kind of guess. And a lot of times you guess wrong, backtrack and figure it out.
1: And what's incredible to me is the fact that you were using paper maps and, you know, who knows how many times you took the wrong turn and you still did it in what, 18 days, 18 days and change. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, like if you had at that time, if you had a, a Garmin, how much time do you think you would have saved?
2: I think that's at least two days. Two days. <laughs> <laughs> or at least a day. Like I lost another day um, waiting to uh, repair my forks. Um, I blew my, my front fork. And I had to ride a flat fork all the way across Montana. And I couldn't get it fixed until Steamboat.
1: When you say flat, you mean, the air, like, was it air?
2: The or, Yeah, the cartridge, you know, blue.
1: Yeah. So you're just flat down onto the front end.
2: Yeah, which, you know, isn't a problem in terms of, like, you can do that route without a suspension fork. But when you lower your front ends yeah. by, you know, a few inches, you sit differently on the saddle. Yeah. So my rear end just got destroyed because right. I was in a totally different riding position.
1: And your neck and your back, like it would have affected everything, right?
2: Yeah, it was really un. It was not pleasant. It was just very uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how technology. You know, I, I've done a handful of events, and and um, yeah, that that term "living on the line." Right, you're just looking down at your GPS and and just following that red line. And at no point, you know, you get turned around sometimes, but at no point have, have I taken a wrong turn to the point where you know it was like putting me back like a half a day because you would never know you take a paper map and you would never know until it could be like three four five ten twenty k in and you're like oh i shouldn't be in this valley i should be yeah, the other one, valley over <laughs>
2: one morning i woke up groggy you know slept for a couple hours woke up groggy i rode up a five mile pass <sighs> that, that was the uh, opposite direction like opposite. There wasn't even the, really? you know, like I had to just turn around, come straight back down and then go out. That was, <clears throat> that was really demoralizing.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, that messes with your head when you're doing that.
1: How do you, um, like your personality, how is your mindset for stuff like that? Are you, are you able to overcome those kind of things? Like what's your, what's your strategy to kind of cope with, with mistakes like that? You have
2: to, um, <laughs> You know, and I think one mistake that I made was I kind of had a set, you know, goal, pace goal, you know, in my head. I thought I could do, um, I thought I could do that ride in 15 or 16 days. And so when you're not meeting your goals, that affects you negatively mentally, you know, hugely. And I was interesting, I was listening to this podcast the other day. Andrew Huberman, um, he's a neuroscientist and was on Joe Rogan. And he talked about the, what did he call it, the dopamine false expectations. Mm. And that if, um, like, if I say, hey, come on over for dinner tomorrow night, I'm going to make you the best steak you've ever had in your entire life. You're going to love it. When you c- come over and have that steak, if it doesn't meet those expectations, your dopamine levels, your responses are physically less, like measurably less. So your expectations affect your tangible brain chemistry, and I think that's extremely important. Uh, and he also, you know, talked in detail about, uh, you know, dopamine and its effect on norepinephrine, uh, and how that can stimulate, you know, or at least put off fatigue. And Mm -hmm. I just, I, I really think, you know, brain chemistry is, is vitally important, especially to an endurance activity. I did this, uh, one year up at, I did a sport up in Alaska. They, there is a, I can't remember what university they were at, but they came up and they did blood work on us. And I know that they looked at serotonin. I don't know if they looked at dopamine or not. I don't remember, but they, they said that my serotonin levels at the end of the event, we significantly higher than uh, everyone else's. I'm assume, assuming comparing to starting levels, um, not, you know, overall amount. And I think that, you know, it's how you, it's not like dealing with stress. It isn't, it isn't the amount of stress or the stress factor. It's how you, how you choose to perceive it. Like one thing I, you know, looking at in terms of course it's like when I would do a race, you know, people would always ask, you know, what's the hardest race or, you know, what's the, you know, most challenging route you've been on, and my answer was, you know, <clears throat> routes aren't terrain is not difficult. Your mental attitude and how you perceive that is the challenge. You can, you can ride on flat grounds for you know, or around a track for 24 hours and have it be the hardest thing you've ever done Absolutely. if you put yourself hard enough. Um, and you know, other courses, you know, might not be physically challenging in terms of terrain profile, but if you have a bad attitude, you are going to be miserable. And now knowing what I know about, you know, a little bit more about brain chemistry, if you're miserable, miserable I don't think you're going as fast as you should be. Like you, there are physical changes in your body with uh, your brain chemistry.
1: I agree. I, I've I've always kind of thought that a lot of the events were and it probably depends on the athlete but definitely more of a mental exercise I think than a than a physical exercise. I mean it's not like um, I, I'm not a pointy end of the stick rider but I do okay. I think I, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty fast and What I find is um, those highs and lows. um, When you start to, um, when you stop drowning in the lows, and stop letting them kind of take over your your thought pattern. If you can just catch it before it gets, before you start swirling like Mm -hmm. down the drain you can overcome it. And it's funny because I've I've done enough of these things now where, you know, you might be doing something. You're just like, this sucks, man. This sucks. I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. And then you're, you're doing some crazy climb. You're pushing up over a pass. And then suddenly you get to the other side and it's like a 180. It's just like the snap of the fingers. It's like, yes, I did it. Right. And you're going down the other side and you're singing and you feel great. And it's like, uh that can almost in its in and of itself be exhausting, just the emotional roller coaster of of the ups and downs
2: oh for sure, and I think you know there's i've noticed in myself like on a you know say training if it's a like a forty degree rainy day, that's generally just kind of you know unpleasant, but it's not so hard that it becomes a challenge, and you really you want. If for me, if I can make something a challenge, like my mental attitude would be far better if it's 20 below and windy than say, you know, 40 degrees and rainy because cold rain is just, you know, unpleasant, but there's no fun factor to that. Whereas if it's 20 below and blowing, you're, you know, you you get an adrenaline rush because it's like, all right, now, you know, I've got to pull it together and I've got to face this, you know, obstacle. And I think having that attitude of, you know, if things become so severe that that's actually an attribute, like that's a good thing, you know, making it a challenge, um, you're much more adaptable mentally. Whereas some people, you know, uh, would get really down the harder things, you know, get.
1: I always feel like I get a bit of, um, I get a bit of a charge out of adversity, you know, when things get really, really, really tough. Like in the winter, I'm, I'm an avid fat biker and, mm-hmm. um, I'll gladly go out in minus 30 Celsius. I don't know what that would be in Fahrenheit. Probably about the same, you know, minus 30 or whatever. Yeah. And um, as long as you have the right gear, I think, you know, and you bring some backup gear, you know, extra pair of gloves, you know, maybe right. another layer, your puffy jacket in case you get a mechanical or whatever. If you have all the stuff you need to, to overcome whatever adversity is going to throw at you, you get a charge out of it. because For sure. Because I think to, you know, to out of a bit of vanity people think you're bananas people think you're crazy to go mm-hmm. out. it's minus 30 what are you doing so i'm gonna go for a ride man we got a bit of snow last night it's gonna be champagne on the trails it's gonna be lovely right and, uh, a lot of people don't have that same mindset so i think that goes a long way as well look, look at these challenges as a as a as a i guess a character building thing i heard this quote saying that adversity doesn't build character it reveals character Exactly right, and it's like, you know, when you when you that I guess that's what I love about these events is you go out and you, you push those limits, and you just kind of, and once you've done a couple, you almost know what to expect. You know, it might rain, it might snow, it might be, you know, forty degrees Celsius, or you know, it might be one hundred and seven, one hundred and five degrees out there, and you're not going to find water for a couple hours. And but all you have to think about is that, you know, all you have to do, all you have to manage is your self-care and th- your tools, your machine, and Ooh. your gear. And there's something really um freeing and cleansing about that. So, does that does that resonate with you like getting out on these these adventures? Does that resonate oh, with you?
2: Yeah. You know, that that's where it starts to get fun for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting, really fun um it's a fun activity. You know, I'm trying to get people to to see that um, you know, I lean on this podcast, I lean into the mental health aspect of, of activities a lot. And uh, like you had said at the beginning of this conversation, it's like, it's so important to, to, uh, and actually something you said in that interview with, with Mike Dion as well is just um, the idea of being uncomfortable. Right. And I, I think it, it helps you feel um, when you come back to civilization, you come back to your family I think it helps, helps you to find the gratitude, I think, um, which is, which for some of us is me, it's, it's, that's hard to maintain sometimes grat, like practicing gratitude is, is, it's a practice. It's hard. It's like to, to just pull yourself out of the fog you're in and just look around and be grateful for what you have. Nothing kind of reveals that more than going out and being uncomfortable for a week or two. You know, when you come back and you have a hot shower and you have a nice bed to sleep in and. You're you're surrounded by your family and your loved ones, and, you know, your stuff and your bikes. And, you know, I. I
2: There's definitely a uh, vulnerable, vulnerableness um, that you have to submit to in in doing really hard things. Um, But I think that's part of that, you know, the growth factor of overcoming that. And, you know, to do, you know, some of these super hard events, you usually have to go through. you know, a little emotional turmoil and usually come out the other side stronger. And anytime, you know, you break yourself down, you know, your weaknesses tend to come to the surface. I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, it's a therapy session really.
1: Oh man. Yeah. It's like the, um, like the, the Australian walkabout, right? The The mm-hmm. journey, just leaving everything behind and throwing the, throwing a pack on your back with a few things in it and, and just, seeing where your feet or seeing where your wheels take you. Right. Um, yeah. If, if you can afford the time to do that, I think that's really important. And it's, it, it could, it could come off as maybe being a bit selfish, especially if you have a family that, you know, you're taking off. And I talked to RJ Sawyer a little bit about, about selfishness and it's like, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we need to, I think we need to take care of ourselves in that way. Cause we're still our, our own people, right? We're, I'm my own person and I am who I am. And, and right. you know, if, if it seems that me taking off for a week is, is selfish, you know, it's all done in the vein of just trying to trying to find myself and be a better human at the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I get out of it anyway. Um, I don't know this, the, the, the race I did a few weeks ago uh, came at a really good time in my life and man, oh man, it's like, I was just be pushing up a hill. I, I single speeded it. So I was walking quite a bit, but uh walking this hill and listening to some music and, and this lyric came up and uh it broke me down. It just broke me right. down. I was just shattered by this lyric and uh I feel emotional about it now, just thinking about it. And then uh I replayed it. I replayed it again and I replayed it again and I replayed it again. And it was just, I was breaking down and then after I listened to it for three or four times, it was almost like a, It was almost like a cleansing exercise, you know, to, it, 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 it brought something out of me from deep within me that I needed to process. And,
2: uh, and that's also, that's a dopamine hit too. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, you're, you're, I think that's all part of the process of, you know, it, it gets you to a heightened state, both physiologically and mentally.
1: Yeah because we're not challenged like that, right? In in everyday life. I think we're challenged differently. I think it almost seems like the stressors of life are way more stressful than the stress of taking a wrong turn or thinking you're running out of water or it just it seems that way. It seems life is easier on the trail, you know? Right. But to me. I I don't know. It's it's I love being out there. So I think that's yeah, it's important people maybe do that. Let's get some alone time and go out and find oneself if you will <laughs> mm-hmm. so when you did that um that tour race it looked like that that picture that was that was up when you were uh, talking to mike it seemed uh it seemed like you packed really light for those times
2: um well it's interesting i i so i did an overnight um uh here a couple of weeks ago and i just weighed my kit my kit now is, you know, like not including food, just the, you know, the stuff I need for for an overnight, which, you know, overnight and 15 days isn't much different, um, except I guess for some repair stuff. But it, basically it's half, half the weight. Wow. You know, my sleeping bag was two pounds. My current sleeping bag is under a pound. Um, I had a two, two pound-ish, I think, bivy sack gore bivy sack um my rain jacket uh my in 99 was a pound and that was with the hood cut off and now my waterproof breathable rain jacket is like three and a half ounces i mean it's just ridiculous <laughs> light crazy and they're all like they're not just lighter they're better yes they're, it, it, everything is better
1: yeah yeah it's, i
2: mean it's you know 29ers you know are nice the biggest I I think the biggest improvement in bikes is tubeless tires. Yes. You know, that's tangibly, you know, you don't have to carry, you know, a a bag full of tubes. Um, Although I did, I had five flat tires in 99 and four of them were in one day. So, you know, outside of one day, having one flat and 2,500 miles is pretty good. Like that's not, um, a major issue at all.
1: Yeah. nowadays it seems like people are, um, like I haven't, I haven't had a flat touch wood in any of the events that I had. I, I think because I always replace my tires, I think just the timing of it, when I know I'm going to have an event coming up, I always to replace my tires. I think it's really important to go out with new rubber and, um, a fairly new drivetrain. That's always kind of my logic is, uh, you know, good chain, good rings, you know, that, that stuff should be pretty tight and then new rubber that's always been kind of my policy and I've heard of people finishing the tour tour divide on, you know, no flats, no punctures, Mm. you know, um, my day is going to come though. I'm sure where I'm going to slice my sidewall open. Um, yeah, no, that's awesome. So that experience, uh, did you go back and try it again after your 18 day finish?
2: No. Um, like I'm thinking about it, like, I might do it in the next couple of years or I for sure do it like at age 60, you know, try and do a good 60 plus time. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking about it.
1: Maybe I'll meet I mean, you n- next year. Big
2: time, and that's, you know, it's a big time commitment, but yeah. it'd be, fun. it'd be fun to do it. Um, Cause I remember just being so frustrated at the navigation.
1: Mm.
2: Like that was probably my biggest like mental frustration is, was the navigation and, Now with my, you know, Wahoo Rome, like that's basically a non-issue. Just follow the, you know, the dotted line.
1: Yeah. Follow the line. I I sometimes wonder. Sorry, go ahead.
2: It's it's not just route finding, but then it's like, all right, you know, I'm out of water or out of food. How far is it, you know, to the next town? And with GPS, it's like, oh, it's, you know, 13.4 miles exactly. That helps, you know, with mentally, you know, you know where you are. Like, I think that's, you know, kind of the burden of, you know, your, your mental state of mind. It's really helpful information. If you, um, you know where you are and you know where you're trying to get to.
1: Yeah. And resupply seems pretty, um, um, often on that route.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure like now that people know, like all those tourists are coming through, like even the gas stations, I'll bet have, you know, way better, probably really good food now because they have a market for it in the summer. Right. How do you, you know, eat? So half cycles coming through.
1: Yeah. Especially during that time. What's your, uh, what's your nutrition like? What do you eat when you're out there for like these long runs? Are you a, are you a carbohydrate guy or are you a fats and proteins guy?
2: Well, no, anytime you're carrying your food, you kind of have to go higher fat and then You can only process about 300 calories of carbohydrate an hour. And generally speaking, you you know, you need more calories than that. So you've got to get them from fat or protein if you simply want to digest them. Right. Like, it's funny, you know, back in the day, I got I used to get tons of criticism for eating high fat foods. And uh, now it's like it's common sense science that you you have to you have to have, you know, fat content um, for, you know, a long endeavor. Um, and like some fats are better than others, but if you're doing an, uh, you know, a self-supported ride, like, you know, some gas stations are better than others, but you're you're limited. Like cookies are, are cookies are good. Nuts are really good. Um, I remember like the gas stations in Colorado were, had fantastic food. Whereas, like n- gas stations in New Mexico, you're eating Postis products, like it's oh. clink and ding dongs, and yeah, that was that was challenging because you get tired of that acidic food. It really hurts your mouth. Yeah, you get, your mouth gets just covered with sores from because yeah. it, it's um, it's an eating challenge as much as it is a cycling challenge. Like how much, how many? Ca- in s- some ways, with endurance sport, your stomach you know, can be your, and i found this, especially because I have kind of a weak stomach. My stomach is my limiting factor in how fast I go. It's not my training. It's not my leg strength. It's how many calories can I process and keep down, you know, without puking them. Right.
1: Yeah. I brought on the last event I went on, I brought, um, I don't know how many calories it would have been. I don't know. I'm a meat, meat, cheese, nuts guy. And, um, and i'm I'm fairly fat adapted, I think I don't need a lot of carbohydrate, and I didn't have to eat much over this is just like a two day event, two days, and I did it two to two days nine hours nine and a half hours but it's like um I barely ate anything, I didn't have to eat anything, and I was never really that hungry and I would hit a resupply and I'd eat a little bit, you know, but I never had to tap into my uh my stash and mm. um i I think that you know I hear people going out and bringing like forty gels or whatever and just pounding gels all. and I guess it depends on the level of, level of activity but and your physiolog physiology obviously, but I find them' a bit more of a dieseler than than you know I don't run hot on these things, so I can just like eat fats and then just keep going all day and uh, it's a great diet
2: <laughs> yeah gels are much more uh, efficient as a food, and I would always you know, use them in events where I could, but I could never fuel on gels for longer than 12 hours like that. I think that was my max. And then I would just start gagging them.
1: Yeah. I find it just bombs your gut. I have a really hard time digesting like high carbohydrate foods after I'm, I've been fat adapted for so long. And then, you mm-hmm. know, I, I would eat something like a uh, part of this race we did. We, we got like free ice cream at this place in in a little town South of here. Ate the ice cream and it just killed me, man. It just totally killed me. Just, you know, like I just, it just stuck in my gut and I, I had no energy. I just felt tapped from that. It took me about an hour to process that. And then as soon as I got over that, I was like, oh, okay. Got my energy back. My guts feel better. Now I can keep going. <laughs> right. It's so interesting. It's such a balance, right? Something. Yeah. And you've
2: got to, you've got to learn, you know, um, your system. Like there's, nutrition is a it's a soft science for sure um i think like things that i would do differently doing the divide i would uh i'd probably dose you know like vitamins and minerals like i'd carry a bag just with you know vitamins for the track down because you're not i i don't think you know like advanced nutrition is all that important in you know something short like you know, you're generally not running out of, you know, key vitamins and minerals, but there's a few things that you you do, you want to be getting them back just because you're, you're essentially eating junk food, you know, half the time that is, you know, has no nutrients. It's purely calories.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's good advice. And I think too, to, to go out and, and uh, practice that, to learn kind of what your physiology is capable of, of processing and what your metabolism's like. and yeah no that's interesting that's why that's why i love it too it's like a puzzle right these events Mm -hmm. are like these puzzles that you have to figure out and you know when you when you assemble the puzzle correctly it feels good otherwise
2: yeah like i remember thinking you know i did an awful lot of you know endurance events but every time i did one something you know that has never come up before you know came up like i would try and i would try and prepare as well as i could, but. I think it's also important to be adaptable because there's so many variables and you just, you can't control them all. And it's, I think it's a better skill set to, you know, be able to adapt yourself to your environment sometimes rather than, you know, Mm. planning every contingency.
1: Yeah. Because like you said, you're going to get on the trail and there's going to be times, lots of times where you're not going to be able to get the nutrition that you want. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to pound these things that you don't usually eat and you have to be adaptable to that as well. So yeah, no, that's, that's something, something to consider is for sure. Um, something else I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was, uh, which I thought was really interesting was the whole idea of, of etiquette and intentions, uh, entering these events. And, um, I think you mentioned that also with your interview with, with Mike, how you approach the endurance events, kind of like the like the uh, climbing culture, mm-hmm. where you know you 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 let the group know kind of what your intentions are, and um, can you talk a bit about that? Kind of delve into that a little bit.
2: Yeah, well, it's I mean it's different now because there are like that the um, Buzz Burrell who does that he manages that fastest known time um, you know website that kind of keeps track of you know, trail records, and it's pretty organized these days, and you know, there aren't many rules in the sport, but, you know, he's got them, you know, I think they're fairly well listed out, but back then, that was just kind of the Wild West, like, there were no rules, like, <laughs> you know, and, you know, when they're, when you don't have a solid set of rules, you, and the thing that I liked about uh, the, the what climbers would do is, you know, you, you acknowledge, like, if you set some mark, you acknowledge what the previous folks have have done. Whether, let's say, they climbed it, you know, faster or differently, um, and then you try and do it, you know, in something, you know, preferably is at least as hard, you know, or maybe harder, given depending on the, the variables, or you at least acknowledge, you know, how you did it compared to uh how somebody else uh did it like i remember being frustrated i went out and i ran the uh the white rim trail i pushed a baby jogger i did it in june and it's 100 miles and i pushed 50 pounds of water oh, there's, no, there's no available water there uh well some guy went out a few years later he did it in winter he so he he broke my record um He still did it self-supported, but he did it in winter. So like, you know, whatever, 50 degrees instead of a hundred, all of which is fine. Like that's, you know, you can, you can, you know, ride these trails or run these trails however you like, but he didn't even mention the fact that, you know, I did it in summer and he was doing it in a cooler part of year. And then it turns out this guy was, he was banned from a lot of these sports because he cheated. He was cutting courses. Um, So I guess that was kind of his M.O., but I'm just, you know, disappointed in people sometimes. Um,
1: Yeah, it's got to be apples to apples, right? I think if you're going to if you're going to challenge a route. um, Or even
2: if it's it's not, just say so. Mm. You know, I'll just acknowledge like this happened to me again. Um, So the 24 hour off road record. Which I set up in Mammoth. So when I did that record initially, I called up the previous record holder. And because a mountain bike, you know, loop is kind of arbitrary. I mean, they did have some rules. It has to have a certain amount of climbing. I think it has to have 20,000 feet of climbing within the 24 hours and has to be dirt and some, you know, it has to be, you know, a loop, not mountain back, just some logical things. But I contacted him and asked him, Hey, should I use your loop or should I find something different? And he suggested I find something different. So, you know, I did that. And then, you know, I did the record. I beat his mark. And in talking about it, I said all of those things. Like, I beat Chris's record, but he did it on a different chorus. You know, this is my chorus, etc. Well, a couple of years after that, this woman, Amy Regan, sends out a press release that made all the magazines saying. I mean, she didn't beat my record. It, it's even more frustrating. She said, um, oh, I would have beaten John's record, but I thought I had broken it, so I stopped early. Which, you know, made no... Like, so so she, she thought she had broken my record, so she stopped, you know, like a couple miles, you know, before that. But did this totally different course out in Acadia, Maine. Didn't contact me, you know at all so as soon as i saw this press release i picked the phone and called her i was like hey is this you know tell me about your route is it a real mountain biking route she's like oh yeah it's it's real mountain biking you know it's there's it's ruts and i thought it was really challenging i'm like really okay Uh, so i didn't believe her um and i did some research and i packed up my car and i drove out to acadia national park and she had chosen like a bridal trail you know, for a loop. So I I went and I set a record right then with no preparation, and I beat her mark by over a hundred miles. Like it was just and and after I set that mark, I, the Ultramarathon Cycling Association was kind of the governing body at that time. I asked them to um, throw away that new record because it wasn't true to the spirit of mountain biking. It was a it was a carriage trail. Like it was there was nothing. It was wheelchair accessible, you know, a hundred percent of it. And I just didn't think that that was in the spirit of what mountain biking, you know, should be.
1: Yeah. Like again, apples to apples, right? If you're going to, if you're going to challenge a route, then, you know, it should be, it should have the same characteristics of the, the, the route that you're trying to break a record on. So <clears throat> it'd be interesting. Um, I kind of mentioned this to Jay Petervery. I was talking to him. A few months back and I kind of put out it was like, do some of these events need to have categories? And you know, he said, No, 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 we don't need categories, but but like how do you, you mean? mean? Well, what I mean is be like say someone who did the tour divide, um, you know, self supported no electronics. Like is that too uh, hard is that too hard to govern? Like it probably
2: Yeah, and like you know, talking with, you know, folks you know, back in the day, you just want is you want no rules. As soon as you have rules, you have mm-hmm. to enforce them. Yeah. And then because you can't enforce them, um I mean I really liked what Jay said in that um that tenth anniversary thing. He said, Do it your way. Yeah. You know, just do it do it however you, you feel like, and I think that's a very good um attitude. Yeah. I, I um, yeah, I think people should just do it, whichever, whatever makes them happy. And, uh, you know, certainly some people are going to take the competition part seriously. I think we should emphasize, you know, maybe the participant, you know, part of it more.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good call. And it, it's true. I mean, everyone's everyone, everyone wants to have an experience. Um, I just figure that there seems to be a big influx of, of, uh, cycling pros into some of these events like these gravel events and whatnot um and whether it would be uh reasonable to have some sort of more hardened um requirements around the events. You know, um, again, but- I, I've, I've no experience on, on the tour divide. So I'm, I'm totally speaking from no experience, but just like kind of what I said before, like, um, you know there was a big deal last year about you know filming on the Roots and you know having having visitors you know supposed to be self-supported and by seeing loved ones you get a boost which I can totally appreciate like I I totally appreciate that even even seeing another competitor on the course gives you a boost right I find like it's like you, you go to bed down and oh you, you, you where you're going to sleep there's some other people that's a bit of a boost right an emotional security boost when there's other people around Yeah, and
2: you you can't legislate that. No, like I I would, I would say, um, you know, when I did it first, I had a film crew. You know, they documented it there, and we did it. You know, what we could to, you know, not have it, you know, be an aid. But if you know that someone else is out there, and they know that you're out there, like that is a benefit. There's no around that. I mean, I would. I don't think if, if you're gonna, and not that the Tour Divide is that much of a wilderness event, like it's it's not compared to some other things that I've done. But if you want that wilderness feel, like having a film crew, like negates that completely. Yeah. You know, like you know, I like watching things. You see somebody in the middle of nowhere doing something, you know, really crazy, and my first thought is, well, that photographer or camera guy, he's doing the same thing. Like, what's his, you know, what's his story? <laughs> You know, they're there, you know, battling these elements too. And nobody, you know, talks about that. But.
1: With, with like a hundred pounds of camera gear too, right? Exactly. <laughs>
2: um, so you can make, you can make a case that y- you should not have uh, film crews. Um, but, you know, that's, do you want the sport, you know, to ever grow and prosper? Like if nobody, if nobody reads about it or sees it, you know, the sport will be nothing. So I think that's, that's kind of a painful trade-off. Hmm. Um, with coverage comes a lot of negative. Yeah.
1: and yeah, I I'd said that when I talked to Mike on this podcast, I, I asked him that question. Is like you know, being the guy that you know filmed it, you know, for Ride the Divide and how he felt about filming uh, in modern times, like with what's going on now, and and he had said it. You know, it's it's true. It's like we we want to grow the sport. We want people to know what these people are doing. And you know the adversity that they're facing, and and a lot of the films, um, like Josh Ibbett's film, uh, I know something that impacted me was even though he was being filmed at pretty close proximity, he was still suffering. Like you could see the suffering in his face, right? Like I, I don't think that um, the people being around it may have been like a like a a bit of a boost emotionally but physiologically he was still suffering and and putting it all out there and we wouldn't have seen that if someone didn't capture that so yes yeah, right. it's, it's it's gray i guess it's kind of a gray area but it's just the the times we live in now
2: i mean i think the one difference now though it's technology is changing it to the point where you can self-produce mm. Well, I mean, if you have an iPhone, that's basically a state of the art digital camera from 10 years ago. Absolutely. Or 15. So, um, I think that will change things. Like you can, you can, you can get very good coverage and document epic events, um, individually yeah. or from a, you know, every person, <clears throat> you know, in a save the tour divide, if you combined all their footage, you could make a pretty cool movie.
1: Yeah. Maybe that should be something that, you know, that you kind of, we should do.
2: Works, you know, the, 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 the video and all the imagery, I'll bet you could put together a really cool project that way.
1: We should uh, get Mike Dion involved in that. We could send him terabytes of audio and video that he could produce making some <laughs> crazy movie. Right. <laughs> That'd be a great project. That's awesome. Well, John, I'm mindful of your time. Um, and I really appreciate you talking to me today. Yeah, of course, my think, pleasure. Yeah, and sorry about some of the technical difficulties there. I was a bit, I'm a bit embarrassed about all that. But, um, um, what's your plans? What's coming up for for you in the next handful of years? You're, you're thinking about tackling the Tour Divide again, or is there some Wild West route? Is there something you want to do?
2: Uh, I think I'm going to do the across Washington. Oh, okay. Uh, round. I'm going to try and do that still this year. So awesome. maybe in a few weeks. Right on. Uh, there's some issues with the uh, the native lands being off limits but they're trying to you know route around that so it'd be kind of an improvised you know route of it but uh, I think that would still be epic and be fun and uh, it'd be good for me to just get out and do a you know fun adventurous ride I'm yeah. kind of jonesing for that so
1: what kind of rig you're riding now
2: I've got a salsa cutthroat yeah nice yeah I love it it's an awesome bike
1: I'm afraid of that bike a little bit because it's so light it's so light it just like but you know, technology, right?
2: Yeah, I like I like light.
1: Yeah, those mustache bars on that thing. Yeah, nice. That's all. You are not a, a fan of the drop bars, or
2: no, I don't. I don't. I think I have way better control off road on mustache bars.
1: Yeah, yeah. I run a Jones bar, a Jones bar on my single speed yeah, when I was
2: racing it. Jones bars are great.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think the the, the key thing for me is um, the stack height on the front end to make sure that it's kind of comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's what I worry. I'd like to try a drop bar bike, but I I don't think I'd be comfortable in the drops unless the stack was really high. You know what I mean?
2: Well, see, that's my other um, criticism with drop bars off road is if you watch people, nobody rides in the drops. They're all in the heads. So even if you compensate with the geometry, well, then it's almost worse because people are riding in, you know, in a totally different position. So Mm -hmm. I don't, Mustache bars, I think, are you know kind of a, the best of both worlds. Um, you can ride in, in the bends because they're at the right height, and then you have one finger braking, so you have really good control.
1: Yeah, especially compared to rim brakes back in the day. You were running rim brakes, right, when you did the tour? Yeah. 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 How many brake pads did you go through?
2: I don't remember. I don't remember it being uh, too much of a problem. Oh, no. Most of those descents are... You know, you're kind of pedaling, so you're, you're not, it's not heavy braking. Um, but I did have a lot of, I, it rained almost every day for the first week. Um, so that was tough on my, you know, drivetrain and all those parts. Oh, yeah. to get
1: That's the adversity. That's what makes it mm-hmm. fun, right? The type two, type two fun. Um, can people find you? Or are you a social networking guy? You're on Facebook?
2: Yeah, Facebook and Instagram.
1: People can find you there. Yep. Any last words of advice for people who are thinking about getting into a bike packing event or want to take up the activity?
2: Get out there and do it. Have fun. Yep. It's so easy now and enjoyable just to go out. Like last week, I did a, an overnight. You know, so one night is you know pretty approachable. You don't have to carry you know a ton of weight. You just need some food and um, go up into the mountains. And I was fortunate. I rode. From my home here in Seattle, rode right up into the mountains and the second mor- or first morning up there, I saw, you know, a group of four wolves. Awesome. And I thought that was just a, you know, that was a great experience. To, you know, that close and then to feel that far out there is kind of what the sport is all about. I really enjoyed that. Had a meteor shower. You oh, know, nice. that, I got the whole, got the full bikepacking experience in a short amount of time.
1: It's funny the when you get out there I, the first night on the, on the I slept on the lost elephant there was a, we just hit this bridge deck great place to sleep in the middle of the night and it's totally flat so it's perfect right over top of a creek you can water up in the morning and you know I did some stretching and I think my eyes were closed the whole time I was just kind of trying to relax and kind of get the heart rate back down and crawled into my bivy and then I looked up and I was just like
0: whoa
1: the stars like you know, I live in a small town, so we don't have a lot of, uh, uh, urban or light pollution, but, <clears> uh, I, I hadn't seen stars like that for a long time. And I think that really puts things in perspective, especially if, you know, you live in a city like Seattle, you know, you right. probably can't see the sky like you can when you're out in the woods. Right. And, uh, man, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, that was another thing is just getting out there and, and seeing wildlife. And, you know, we saw grizzlies and black bears and, and all sorts of crazy wildlife and it's just yeah, just to be out in it. It's just so uh it's so meaningful and fulfilling. So yeah. what's all Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time, John. And uh we'll talk to you soon. We'll do this again, maybe after you cross Washington.
2: Sounds good. Appreciate it.
1: What's your goal time for that?
2: Um, I really don't know. Like I'm you know, I haven't done a, a long distance bike ride in twenty years, so I have I have no idea what my body is even capable of. So that'll be fun to kind of find out.
1: Well, yeah, I'd love to talk to you after that. For sure. Let's keep in touch. Okay, thanks, Steve. Thanks, man. I want to thank John again for his time and thank all of you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. We mentioned uh, RTD10 a lot. I think I called it RDT10, whatever, tongue twister for me. But uh, RTD10, head on over to RTD10.com. And, uh, if you buy a ticket for 10 bucks, you can get inside and there's a couple podcasts by Patrick and I, and, uh, bikes are death and myself. And there's also like four hours of content interviews and, um, stories and experiences. Um, totally worth the 10 bucks. So head on over there. Let me just double check. It is rtd10.com and, uh, yeah, get a ticket and, uh, check it out. You're really going to love it. I want to thank Rebound Cycle and Cycling 101 for their support. Without you guys, I wouldn't be able to do this, and I really, really appreciate it. If you want to support the MyBack40 project, head on over to myback slash support and uh, see what you think. And uh, join the community. I love you guys. And also, um, the easiest way to support the My by 40 podcast is to head on over to the platform you listen to me on and give me a five-star rating and a review. I'd really appreciate that as well. Well, everyone, I uh, hope you are well and getting out and getting some exercise. Um, I'm going to have another podcast coming at you soon. Sorry, I'm about a day or two late. I think maybe. Anyway, I'm getting them out there and I hope you enjoy them. And I hope that you are out there riding your bike. And if you are, keep the rubber side down.